today on Laura Lynn and Friends. We had extra funding in Emerge for extra staff and whatnot, and we were sitting there with 40% of our normal volume. Doctors were thumb wrestling over the next person to walk into the, to the waiting room because they were bored. Nurses were dancing on TikTok videos and things like that, you know what I mean? Because we were the healthcare heroes, but in most provinces for most of the pandemic, we were sitting around empty wards, empty emergency rooms, and people were having their strokes and heart attacks at home and too afraid to come in. Well, hello everyone and welcome to The Last Days. My name is Laurel Lynn Tyler Thompson. I hope you're not worried about anything because there's absolutely nothing to worry about. You know, the apocalypse might be here, but uh, we are actually surviving it and thriving. Uh, no, we're not in the apocalypse yet. Uh, we've got some some war mongerings, a lot of fear mongering going on about maybe a nuclear war or something like that. Um, I don't, I don't think that we need to fear a big outfall right now. That is my general feeling, letting you know about that because uh, of all the fear that I see happening in uh, the people that are writing me and letting me know that they're a little bit worried about what's going on. Well, it it is, um, it's a rumor of war and rumors come and rumors go. Let's hope that everybody gets a clearer head than some of the people that are, you know, involved in trying to bring peace. I believe in seeking peace, pursuing it with all your heart, and that is including in our own relationships. We do the best we can to be at peace until somebody somewhere makes that impossible. Usually, we can't be at peace any longer when somebody makes a stand uh, that violates our conscience and our God-given freedom to choose what we believe in a free country and that's when we lose some of our uh, peaceful disposition because we can no longer comply so um, our beloved prime minister uh, his majesty i like to refer to him that way at the end of the show i'm going to read uh, about <laughs> uh, shadrach meshach and abednego and i was on uh, i was being interviewed for a large um a show that's on a large network in the States this morning. And we kind of went over that. And they were always, uh, even though they were going to be thrown in the furnace for not bowing to the big idol, they were always so polite, right? They said, your majesty, we do not have to answer you regarding this, but we'll let you know that we are not going to comply and we are not going to bow. So uh, here's our, the, our majesty his uh, prime ministership Trudeau speaking this morning disparagingly about oh, no I know I'm not asking you to throw to it hun he's worried because he thinks that I'm uh, about to throw to something no I'm just going to paint the picture for everybody um, so he's in a he's doing a a news briefing a, a media scrum in a grocery store and of course somebody asks him about you know uh, I guess a police chief or something has resigned in Ottawa and, and uh you know, if this reflects badly on his leadership, basically. And he's like, you know, since the truckers uh, did their whatever, whatever. Well, we've got um, basically the Canadian Civil Liberties, and we'll set that up. I want you to see something that they're about to really give uh, Mr. Trudeau something to think about with respect to how he brought on this Emergencies Act without any, really, the right um, criteria being met for doing so. But before we get started, you know, I love to read from my dad's Bible. Um, I looked open today and it kind of fell open to this amazing 
uh, passage. My dad loved to underline the word of God. And uh, when he passed away last year, we all kind of had a look at his Bible and I kind of snuck it away before my brother could stop me and um, got his Bible. And so I try to read something that he underlined that he thought was important. And it makes me feel close to him that he's still here. So in Isaiah, he underlined Isaiah 40, verse 31. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength and they shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. I love that. I feel weary sometimes because there's a lot going on. But I do know that when I trust God, I'm going to get through it. And so that's how I choose to do so. And we have a lot of things that are happening in our world, but I see that deception is being exposed at every turn. So the Canadian Civil Liberties Statement um, on upcoming Freedom Convoy Commission is fascinating. I love this, what this lady had to say. Take a listen. I want to be clear about the CCLA's position. The protests needed to be addressed, but the government also had an obligation to comply with the law and use emergency powers as a truly last resort. That was not the case, and it is our opinion that their actions were unlawful and unconstitutional. We are going into the commission with an open mind, but in our view, the government has yet to prove that the legal threshold to invoke the act was met, and the burden is on them, not the other way around. This is what we will be focusing on at the commission, the federal government's decision to invoke the act and the constitutionality of the emergency orders that it put in place. As a participant in the inquiry with full standing, we will vigorously test the government's evidence and demand that the government is held to account for its actions. We believe that the inquiry must address several important questions, including first and foremost, was the legal threshold for invoking the act met? Were there genuine concerns about threats to national security, or was the government largely concerned about the economic impacts of the blockades? What evidence supported the government's view that there was a threat to security or a serious threat to the lives, health, or safety of Canadians? Why, according to the government, were existing laws inadequate to address the emergency? What alternatives did the government consider? Could legislation passed on an expedited basis have avoided the invocation of the act? Why were the emergency orders drafted so broadly? When the protests were localized, why was application to the entire country considered necessary? How did the protests and blockades impact the rights and freedoms of people in Canada? And perhaps more significantly, how did the emergency orders that were put in place impact the rights and freedoms of people in Canada. Hmm. I found it just so fascinating uh, traveling down to the United States of America after spending all that time with the Freedom Convoy um, and heading down to the States. And uh, they certainly were not hit with rubber bullets and beanie bags to the face, <laughs> mainly because they're all packing. <laughs> uh, something there to think about. But... Um, very interesting how our two two countries have dealt with the freedom of speech issue very, very differently. And uh, I've definitely felt like we're more like we're in China or North Korea the last 
couple years as we figure things out. Um, so I want to also show you about, um, before we bring on an amazing guest today, but uh, Tucker was on with Bob Roos, I believe it is, after he questioned whether Pfizer knew that the vaccine would not stop transmission. This is all over Twitter today. So, uh, and, and we kind of ran the clip of the lady talking about it yesterday, but here's Tucker with Bob Roos. It really was a special moment. For the first time, Pfizer admitted that the vaccine was not tested on stopping the transmission of the virus when it entered the market. And this has massive implications. Governments pushed millions of people worldwide to get vaccinated by telling them, um, by telling, telling you to, to, to do it for your grandmother. And they yes. tricked perfectly healthy young people into taking this jab using false arguments. And they used big words such as antisocial to saw an immense hatred against people who refused to comply with the government's wishes. And even worse, many governments, including mine, actually introduced so-called COVID passports. These passports made access to parts of society conditional. Those who did not wish to get vaccinated lost that access, not being able to visit a restaurant or a gym, all in the name of public health. Our governments love to t talk about institutional discrimination, but this was real institutional discrimination. Yes. In many countries, like the US and Italy, vaccine mandates were introduced for certain professions. Many people lost their job, their livelihood, their business, because they stood by their principles. Austria even had a lockdown for the unvaccinated because of this reason. The government literally imprisoned people within their own homes. All of this was based on the idea that vaccination helps prevent the spread of the virus. Otherwise, why should people out of society? But this has now proven to be a big lie. Even the president of, um, for international development market of Pfizer now admits that there was no scientific basis to say vaccination would stop the transmission of the virus. And I find this one of the biggest scandals of our time. The politicians responsible for this will be angry that people are looking back at this time, but I won't forget what they did to millions of people. And if we are a democracy, we should have accountability. And that's what yes. I'm calling for. Yes, if we are a democracy. And by the way, Pfizer knew this. None of its executive was bothered to correct these politicians. And yet no Pfizer executive has been charged with the crime they committed which is pretty unbelievable. I wish we had more politicians like you in Washington. Rob Rose, thank you for coming on tonight. We are really grateful. Hmm. A lot of fascinating information coming out. I think it's all very positive. I want to commend Danielle Smith, uh, the new premier in Alberta. Basically, she has stated that uh, the unvaccinated have been the most discriminated against a group of people of all time. And... It certainly has been. I mean, what other group in Canada was not allowed to go to restaurants? Imagine any group, any people group, race, religious, sexual orientation. Uh, imagine that you're just told you're not allowed to participate in, in society. And based on some of the information we're now finding out is really not true at all, is it? All those vaccinated people as we know, can spread COVID. Anthony Fauci openly talking about this. 
Now we know that there was absolutely no basis to discriminate against those who were unvaccinated. And so did we have something on Danielle Smith? Oh, did you already put it up? I missed it or? Oh, you have a clip. Yeah. Oh, let's look. I didn't know we had a whole clip. Community that faced the most restrictions on their freedoms in the last year were those who made a choice not to be vaccinated. I don't think I've ever experienced a situation in my lifetime where a person was fired from their job or not allowed to watch their kids play hockey or not allowed to go visit a loved one in long-term care or hospital or not allowed to go get on a plane to either go across the country to see family or even travel across the border. So they have been the most discriminated against group that I've ever witnessed in my lifetime. That's a pretty extreme level of discrimination that we have seen. I don't take away any of the discrimination that I've seen in those other groups that you mentioned, but this has been an extraordinary time in the last uh, year in particular. And I want people to know that I find that unacceptable, that we are not going to create. Absolutely, Danielle. And I find that unacceptable as well. And good for you for speaking out. So all over Twitter, uh, everybody's all mad at Danielle. Oh, what are you talking about? People have been way more discriminated than that. Of course, these aren't the people, uh, you know, she's talking about in her lifetime, but these aren't the people that actually had to live through that. It wasn't just the not being able to go places, but also the fact that you were treated so nastily. And you had open, do, do you remember, was it the province that had that front page? Uh, oh, the Toronto Star of all of the things being said about the unvaccinated? I mean, these are the kind of things that you would never say about another uh, people group. You wouldn't speak that way. That would be called, wait for it, hate speech. Hate speech. So the bunch of hypocrites all doing their thing in Canada, under His Majesty, the Prime Minister, Trudeau, leading the charge in all of this. Well, hmm. uh, what else can we show before we, the Pope thing? Okay, so November 6th, uh, many of you might know that, so the Pope is calling for a huge symposium. He's asking everyone to come and he wants the end uh, of fossil fuels. Um, the Pope, you know, isn't he just supposed to stick to biblical stuff? I mean, he, he's not really doing that right either lately. The Pope-mobile? <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's hear what is going to be happening. Do you know that virtually all past civilizations have worshipped the sun? And the Roman Catholic Church has been greatly influenced by pagan sun worship, as you can see in its use of the pagan symbol of the sun and the largest solar wheel is there at the Vatican proper, as you can see. And then, of course, the solar disk on top of what they call St. Peter. And there you see the Pope with a sun emblem as well. So, don't have... And did you know that Sunday worship came from sun, Sunday worship of the pagans? So, for centuries, the Romans worshipped the sun. And, uh, and so then came the Constantine Sunday Law. And the Day of the Sun was revered by pagan subjects and was honored by Christians. It was the emperor's policy to unite the conflicting interests of heathenism and Christianity. All right, so the same day was chosen. So, um, need to bring this to a close. So, look here, everybody. It's important that we go with the Bible. 
and not sun worship. Sunday worship came from sun worship. Anyway, Constantine do you know made what? a Sunday law. I'm sorry. I think I did the I think I did the the uh, the numbers wrong. But what it right before that, I must have missed the time code. Sorry. Um, what he says is the Pope is calling for the end of the use of all fossil fuels. And then it went into all the sun part as well. But oh, sorry, I kind of messed up on that. But I did want to get in how the Pope is basically, he's all aboard with the climate change. We know that the next thing that we're going to have to deal with is these climate mandates. Hey, don't drive your car because we don't have enough gas. You know, we've got a, a carbon off day or whatever it's you know that's the next thing that's coming and we all know that so we're not fooled by any of it um the uh we showed a video on rumble and we're going to be going to rumble maybe just show rumble we're going to go to rumble very shortly i'm going to introduce my guest have a little chat with him and then we're going to go to rumble for the rest because there's some things that we just cannot uh talk about on youtube so we're going to respect them for that but um I want to, so this is where I'm going to be heading to in order to have the bulk of the conversation, everyone. If you want to head over to Rumble now, it might be a good time as I just kind of transition because we are going to be talking about very, very important items today. And some of it we just cannot, we cannot do on this platform. So we're going to release, we're going to release YouTube to go follow us on Rumble, preferably. And, um, but I do want to show this one thing that web report on the gyratory seizures as a presentation of temporal encephalocele. Hmm, I don't know if I'm saying that right at all. Um, so here's a condition that might explain we left YouTube the other day so that we could go to rumble and we showed a video. This is a video of emerging, um, a very odd emerging phenomenon. And, um, it, it was so strange. Uh, so maybe we'll try to get it and show it again today. But one of the things in doing research is that there is, uh, and I think a doctor, um, a doctor on, uh, Getter was sort of reporting that it could be something like this, a gyratory seizure as a presentation of temporal encephalocele. So basically, uh, people are having uh, these seizures and the video that we showed, it had a bunch of other information that they were sharing, which would probably not be acceptable to share on this platform. And that is why we moved over. But basically, we're seeing that there's, um, if I can describe it, people are they're just there and then they suddenly look off as if they see something and then they start going like this and they're fighting something in the air and videos are showing up all over the place because we know we're a very videoed um, culture these days these videos are showing up capturing people and then they're falling over as if they're fighting this thing that they see in the air it is something else so gyratory seizures maybe uh something is going on but definitely the blood brain barrier potentially um, is being harmed. I don't know. So without further ado, what I'm going to do is introduce our amazing guest, Dr. Chris Milburn. Uh, no, I'm going to say hi to, 
to Dr. Chris Milburn before we go. And uh, he's going to be on his best behavior, uh, as he always is. Uh, he is a family and ER doctor. Um, he was the head of emergency for East, the eastern part of Nova Scotia. But he spoke out about uh, what we've all been facing in, the, in this last couple of years. And then he lost that position. Uh, so he still works as a doctor. And I am certainly hoping that we're going to be seeing him on our upcoming tour in the first uh, or second week of November in Nova Scotia. If you're in Nova Scotia, I hope that you're setting dates aside to try to see where we are. And of course, we'll be letting you know where that is. So Dr. Chris Milburn, thank you very much. Thank you and welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. It's a real honor. And I just thank you for your courage and uh, all that you've been through. I think that uh, um, I want I want the audience to kind of see uh, who you are before we sort of let go of YouTube and, and uh, where we'll be able to talk a little bit more freely. But it is my understanding uh, that you have acted very courageously and you've been willing to speak in Canada. Um, if we could speak philosophically just for a moment, how hard has this been to uh, begin to understand that our freedom of speech has literally been so hampered, not just by social media platforms, but also by these, um, you know, these oversight organizations that have oversight over lawyers, doctors, teachers. It's, it's really in our country become a place that we haven't recognized? Hmm. Boy, such a big topic. Firstly, let me back up the bus a few decades because like we had talked about a little bit off camera before we started, but um, a lot of people are under the mistaken impression that doctors lived in a free speech utopia. Everything was fine. We could say what we wanted and then COVID hit and suddenly the clamps went on us and we have to shut up. Not at all the case. Um, this is a sort of a slow moving issue that's been coming for many years. Uh, there was an Ernest Hemingway quote um, in one of his, in, in The Sun Also Rises, where he, somebody asked, how do you go bankrupt? And the answer was slowly and then all at once. And our free speech has been eroded and has disappeared slowly and then all at once. So a lot of people have noticed it, that it's happened in the medical field. But to give you an example, in 1994, I was a medical student. And at that time, there was a urology professor who put up a slide, and I believe it was this. He was trying to add a little levity to a you know a dry a dry subject. Excuse, excuse the pun in urology, I guess. But he, he the the this the cartoons had a two men talking, and one said, uh, "What are you doing today?" He said, "Oh, I got to go get my prostate examined." And the other guy said, "Oh my God, I'd rather make alimony payments," you know. <laughs> and it wasn't debatably it wasn't that funny, but it turned out. I found out about a week later that two girls in the class who were kind of on the left wing fringe of our class had lodged a formal complaint saying that this was, you know, uh, misogynistic, et cetera, et cetera. And I had heard this and I heard that this urology prof wasn't going to teach anymore. So I brought in a petition to class and the petition was very polite. It said, we understand that some of our classmates were offended by this cartoon, but we, the undersigned, were not offended and we think this person is a great prop. I forget the exact wording. I passed it around. There were 84 people in our class. 82 of them signed it, right? So basically everybody except the two people who had complained signed it. And I, I took it and gave it to that prof. And I never did hear the follow-up, but I believe he kept teaching after that. I don't know if he brought it to wow. the dean or what he did. But I just tell you that story to kind of tell you where I come from, but also to tell you this is not a new phenomenon. 
for 15 years, 20 years or so, there's been all these new language uh, imperatives that have crept into medicine. Like the word addict is verboten now, you have to say. And then it was a, a substance abuser, but then you couldn't use that. So it had to be a person who uses, or per, then it was a person who abuses substances, but then abuse was too judgmental. So now it's a person who uses substances. So we're down to this word, this phrase that doesn't mean anything because I'm a person who uses substances. I have a beer once in a while and I've used Tylenol. So I use substances. So am I the same as somebody who's in the gutter using heroin, right? So we, we water the language down a bit, bit by bit, because we're supposed to in, in the issue on, you know, on transgenderism and transgender medicine, there are certain things you cannot say that's been developing over quite some time. The issues around race and medicine, we have lower standards for certain races to get into med school. We have, um, you know, differential ways of evaluating diff different races in some med schools. And uh, again, like there's only one acceptable opinion and, and you can't say the other side of it. Right. And so these things have been developing over a long time. It wasn't COVID. So people have the wrong impression. I was in trouble in 2019 for an op-ed I did and uh, I won't go into details, but I used the word criminal to describe people who were assaulting nurses in the ER. And um, I basically got taken to task and went through about a year process up in front of the college having to answer for having used criminal, which was too judgmental a word, you know. Um, so the, these things it was before COVID. It's just gone on steroids since COVID hit. Well, uh, I think that this is what Jordan Peterson, uh, such a hero as well in our country for speaking out early. Uh, Bill C-16 was where we first learned all about who Jordan Peterson was because he, he sent an uh, alarm out that if we you know, if we have to have begin the beginnings of compelled speech, that this would be uh, an infringement on our freedom of speech. And in order to have a democracy, you've got to be able to have good, healthy, vigorous debate in the town square over these things that we all don't always agree on. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, to make a connection here, and this is a little bit hard to speak about because it's a very deep issue, but many people believe um, that this erosion of freedom of speech in the scientific realm, in science, medicine, politics, the, part of the reason that free speech has gone away is uh, C.S. Lewis warned back, you know, nearly a century ago that the next tyranny would come through science. And the reason for that is, you know, we've abandoned our spirituality, we've abandoned God, and we've replaced God with science, right? We call this scientism. Uh, this idea that, and that's the basis of progressivism, right? So scientism is this idea that through science, we can achieve a better life. That's the way we achieve a better life, not by going to church, not by connecting with family, but science will lead us to the utopia. And if you believe that the person with the most scientific knowledge should have the most power in a society, what you end up with is a medical officer of health who can lock everybody in their homes because he says that I know this is the best thing for you. Not, not only can none of you argue with me, but no other doctor can argue with me too, because I'm at the top of this pyramid. You will all listen to me because the information only flows one way from scientific expert down. I'm going to tell you how to lead the best life. Whereas, you know, uh, science, this idea that we, you know, the, the repeated mantra, follow the science, follow the science, follow the science all through COVID. I really disliked it because 
where you know we, science doesn't lead anywhere science can tell you how electrons travel through wire but it can't make an iphone it can't make zoom those things come from the human imagination and it, it, science can't value things either like you, you, i let's say i could tell you with great certainty that masks if you wear them all the time they reduce covid transmission by eight percent they probably don't but let's say i could does that mean that a mask mandate is okay well the answer is that's not a scientific question you know how much value is there in seeing somebody smile how much value is there in breathing fresh air how much value is there in not feeling constricted those things are, are spiritual and they're different for everybody and to have to elevate one person that medical officer of health and give them the keys to society and say you can tell us all what to do for the next two years and we will live by your dictum it's that same kind of thing it's going back a thousand years and and worshiping a, a pope or a king or somebody who is all powerful that we all bow down to and follow their dictates no matter what they say and when you look at how 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 were people so easy to manipulate and so quick to vilify unvaccinated people well the, the the king told them to the medical officer of health told them that that was what they had to do and we just all fell in line because we've lost our deep sense of who we are and how we relate to each other and the value of, of people and humans and church and all these things that used to mean something and now it's just replaced by the scientific god that we're all bowing to Wow, I, I couldn't agree with you more, and I just thank you for that. So let's say goodbye to YouTube. I'm very sorry, YouTube. This is also going to cut off BitChute. So if you're on BitChute, I'm very sorry. BitChute is such an amazing platform, but it's tied into live through YouTube. So we're going to say goodbye to you right now. Head over to Rumble, and we'll see you there. Uh, Dr. Chris, um, these are very, very important things because what happened, and as we see with this civil liberties um, commission that is now going to call the government to account, uh, you faced this personally. So you were the the head of the ER, is it, in, in, a, in a part of your province, and then you spoke out and you lost your position there. Yeah, so, so my story, just to give you a little bit of background on myself, I, I've mostly done ER, done some family matter, done some other stuff, but I was really involved with public health for many years. I was actually a, a member and then the head of the Canadian Medical Association uh, Committee. It was called the Committee on Healthcare and Promotion, but it was essentially their public health committee by a different name. And then I was a member and then the head of the provincial public health committee. It's all called the Public Health Issues Committee of Doctors Nova Scotia. I was involved with that for years and I was on many local public health boards. So I have a long interest in public health. I'm not like a rube who just fell off the turnip truck and didn't know anything about it. So when I first heard that they were going to lock everybody down and make everybody wear masks and all these things, I right away I went to the literature and I started to read about it and I realized there's risks and benefits and I thought this is this is wrong. This is bad. This is going to hurt people. This is going to make people depressed down. And I expressed my concerns pretty early behind the scenes because I was head of Emerge at that time. And I kind of pushed back a bit and asked for answers and asked for justification. And it was basically ignored. The answers I did get told me to basically, um, when I asked, can you please provide me the justification for masks? What I was told was our committee decided it. That was the answer which wasn't very satisfying. So finally, you know, it was almost a full year. Yeah, it was a full year into all this. It was June of 2021. I was asked to go on a local radio show 
where I'd been a guest many times, just a show where few people go on and they throw out a topic and we throw it back and forth. And the topics were about COVID policy. And so the things I said that got me fired, I said, I don't think the schools should have been closed. I thought that was a bad idea. Um, I don't think anybody should be forced to be vaccinated. I think that's a terrible idea and it breaches medical ethics at a very fundamental level. And the third thing I said was the medical officer of health had been afforded too much power and it's unaccountable power. And those three things got me fired. A couple of days later, I got a call from the head doctor of the zone who said, yeah, we're, we're letting you go. You can't say these kind of things. And the idea being that we're a team, we have to be uh, unanimous and universal in our message. But to me, like going back to that follow the science mantra, number one, you can't follow science. Science gives you numbers, but you have to decide where you want to go. And that's values and what's in your heart. But the, the is a very bad word in those three words because there is no the science. Science is a process, it's a method, it's a way of thinking, but there's no the. As soon as you say there's a the science and the medical officer of health is a repository of all that science and nobody else is allowed to argue with that medical officer of health, that's no longer science, right? That's called a, an autocracy or totalitarianism or however you wanna describe it, but it's sure not science. You have to be able to argue for it to be science. Right. And, uh, you know, th this is sort of what has been questioned the last couple of days as the Pfizer, the woman who spoke for Pfizer, um, you know, with respect to this Bob Roos, who was just on the Tucker clip that I just showed. But she said, yeah, yeah, you know, we didn't really have uh, any knowledge of whether it would stop the uh, spread of the virus if you were vaccinated or not. We, we were just going at the speed of science, she said. And everyone's like, uh, you know, the speed of science, uh, you, you basically were going at your own speed and you weren't following the science at all. Mm, absolutely. So science by its nature if you are actually doing science, there's no such thing as fast science. We can't do quick and dirty science. Oh, wham, bam, did a study. Okay, here's what it showed, now we're done. Or you can do that, you can put one of those studies out there, but you have to allow people to critique it and say, hey, 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 wait, I don't think that's right. And to look at your data and fight with it and argue with it and maybe do another study that disproves it. That's the way science works, right? Science is this accumulated body of evidence that develops over many, many years. And there's often a lot of conflicting data until you get it just right. So there's no way to say with a brand new virus, with a brand new um, untested vaccine with, that's only been on the market for a brief time, and we have no idea about long-term side effects. There's no way to say that that has more benefit than risk. Anybody who said that was um, just an automaton who was repeating the mantra that they had been told, safe and effective, safe and effective, safe and effective. I'm constantly disappointed with the doctors that I meet. There's very few doctors who actually can tell you anything about the actual research that was done with the vaccine. So they'll tell you it's safe and effective and everybody should get it and everybody should get this new bivalent booster. And then when you ask them, hey, did you read the studies on it? No. And I've had that conversation. I've actually taken a few of my friends to task on that because the answer is always no, I didn't really read anything about it. Wow. And so are you seeing any beginnings of opening up? Because some of the data that's now being revealed, uh, they're talking about uh, that I mean, some countries are now banning it uh, below, I think, the age of 50. I think um, Florida has now said they absolutely don't want any young men being vaccinated because mm -hmm. of the myocarditis issue. Mm -hmm. And then we're also seeing the breast milk being impacted in some studies that are coming out. And so do you think that doctors are now um, 
willing to have more discussion or are you able to discuss your thoughts on this now? Hmm. Well, here's what I'd say. Do I think doctors are willing to, uh, do I think the doctors who are all in on the vaccine are willing to now say, Oops, I'm really sorry. I think I was wrong there. I think the answer is no. If they, you know, if they were really doing science, then yes. But the problem is, as you know, as you've talked about many times on your show, it went very quickly from being a scientific question of do these vaccines work to being a political thing. Like if you're a good person, you will take these vaccines. If you're a bad person, you go to the truckers rally and fight for your rights. And and there was no in between. And you either jumped in with one crowd who believed in basic personal autonomy and medical ethics, or you jumped in with the other crowd that everybody should be forced to be vaccinated, even if it's against their will or they were coerced. And so it's, I think it's really, really hard for a doctor who has been uh, pushing everybody to get vaccinated for two years to then step back and say, oh, geez, it looks like the evidence actually look, this actually looks like I was wrong. I'm going to have to admit that I was wrong. And to go back to some of these patients who probably had significant vaccine injuries and say, yes, sorry, I was in the wrong camp on this. You know, just to give you one example, we had somebody recently who was, you know, boosted and then about 10 days to two weeks later was found dead floating face down in a river. You know, he was out just fishing and he was suddenly he was dead. And, you know, these things happened before there were COVID vaccines, but you know, is that coincidence or not? Well, the answer is we need some data on that. And it's a real concern. So any physician who was part of getting him vaccinated to have to look back and say, oh, you know, we have some data now that shows that cardiac events were 50% higher after vaccine or whatever that number is going to come out to be. That's a really hard thing to admit. So we, we have really good cognitive abilities to maintain our previous opinions by discarding any evidence that doesn't fit, right? It's this confirmation bias thing. I'll, I'll find a way to throw away any evidence that doesn't fit with my thoughts and, and I'll only gravitate towards the stuff that does. We all tend to do that as a natural human tendency, but it's really particularly strong when you're all in on vaccines. Yes. And what do you find as a doctor? Because you're somebody who's really, really looking into it. Um, isn't the data and the evidence now showing that um, that there is a sharp rise in myocarditis. Uh, I've heard that cancers are going up, uh, sudden adult death syndrome. Right now in Alberta, the highest cause of death has been listed as unknown, where for all the previous years, you know, um, it's been um, dementia, I think, or something like that, that was the cause of death. It like mm. something seems to be going wrong and also all cause mortality. I think they're letting out numbers that that's up pretty much all over the world. Absolutely. Yeah. So there's no question. There's a very disturbing trend. So I, I said um, one of the things that got me fired was I said when I said everybody shouldn't be forced to be vaccinated. My opinion at the time was maybe these vaccines work. We don't know for how long. We don't know the side effect profile. My guess is that above a certain risk, maybe there's more benefit above a certain in, in demographic groups that have high risk, it might actually have more benefit risk. So for instance, if you're in a nursing home, you're 82, you got a bad heart, bad lungs, diabetes, blah, blah, blah. Maybe an mRNA vaccine for you makes sense because in that age group, 
the myocarditis risk is actually really low. Weirdly, it's lower as you get older. The immune system response is not as vigorous. There's probably various things. So you're not as prone to side effects and you're also way more at risk from COVID. So maybe for those groups, the vaccine is more benefit. I don't think we've even established that yet, but let alone, I said, obviously at some point, just like every drug, every vaccine ever, as you get younger and healthier and less at risk from that particular disease, then the, the benefits of the vaccine get so low that the vaccine has to be incredibly, incredibly safe. And it has to be proven to be incredibly, incredibly safe over a long time before we could say to somebody, we really think your benefit is more than risk. So there's no way we, we could have told a 32-year-old healthy athlete who goes and plays hockey every day and is slim and doesn't smoke to say, oh yeah, you really need a COVID vaccine. For that person, it was clear that their risk of of getting really sick from COVID was so, 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 so low that we, we didn't have enough data on these vaccines to say they were safe enough. You know, The only M mRNA experience we'd really had in humans was, as I understand it, was with kind of late stage cancers um, that didn't have good other treatments. That's a very different thing. If somebody's got a cancer and it's a last ditch treatment and they're gonna die without it, well, there's a lot of stuff that's pretty reasonable to try that wouldn't be reasonable with a 12 year old healthy kid with nothing wrong with it. You know? Yeah, very good point. Um, there's a quick clip we have of a doctor who basically supported the vaccines, got the vaccines, and now is saying something very different. Would that be all right if I played that? Oh, sure, yeah. Okay. Double jabbed and being one of the first to take the Pfizer vaccine. I have, after several months, critically appraising the data, speaking to eminent scientists, in Oxford, Stanford and Harvard, speaking to two investigative medical journalists and being contacted by two Pfizer whistleblowers, reluctantly concluded that this vaccine is not completely safe and has unprecedented harms, which leads me to conclude that it needs to be suspended until all the raw data has been released for independent analysis. Dr. Malhotra. Yes. 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 Dr. Asim. Yeah. yeah, Malhotra. And uh, that, that takes a lot of courage, doesn't it? You know, I think what everybody wants is um, we, we want to know that we can trust our medical establishment. And all of a sudden, we have a more serious problem. And that is that we don't trust the medical authorities the way we once did. We're very grateful for doctors who stepped out and thought for themselves and, and really critically um, analyzed what was happening, but we didn't see that. We saw Dr. Teresa Tam uh, telling everyone not to use drugs that have been FDA approved for decades um, and all kinds of misinformation about how harmful they were, but we know and can see the tests that, you know, hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, there are peer-reviewed studies that show that they're effective. And now we just don't know if we can trust the people making the decisions anymore. Mm. I've, I've heard so many physicians, friends over the last couple of years say that their faith in institutions has been, um, you know, eroded greatly by, by what's happened the last two years because um, there are so many things, you know, governments always lied to us. It's what governments do to get elected and stay in power. They lie and they overpromise, And we were kind of used to that. But 
these very blatant lies um, that people could actually start to see with their own eyes. So for instance, we we justified forcing everyone to get vaccinated by saying, you know, if you get vaccinated, you'll be a dead end for the virus. There's no way you can get COVID. Um, and therefore, if you don't get if you don't get the vaccine, you're going to be passing it on, whereas the vaccinated people won't. And then everybody saw all of their friends who were vaccinated get COVID anyway, right? Or a lot of people who had gone and gotten the vaccine in good faith because they trusted public health and they were told, well, you won't get COVID, then they did. And maybe they gave it to their grandmom because they thought that they'd be safe and they didn't have to worry about it. And so now they're saying, wait a minute, you guys told me that I wouldn't get COVID and I did. And they're just looking around with their own eyes. They can actually see the lies. And a lot of government lies are subtle. The last two years has not been subtle. They've been blatant. And it's hard for them to disappear those lies down the memory hole because of the power of the internet, right? Yes, I think that when we began, uh, like recently, I think it was Air Canada that said, we're stopping these the, the masks. And because we think it's an issue of safety, I mean, that's a shocking thing. It's like now the big wigs are saying, we're not going along with this anymore. We did everything we thought we had to do. We badgered our, uh, you know, our um, clients incessantly. You know, I, my goodness, when I was flying, like if, if the, if the mask should come down to here, you've got to have the lady badgering you to death, just ruining the experience as if it wasn't bad enough, everything you had to go through to actually fly. But now Air Canada coming out and saying, and, and we consider it a safety issue and we're not doing it. I mean, cutting mm -hmm. off breath. I, I mean, it, it just seems so logical in hindsight, but all of these people, you know, what do we say to some of the young people that have literally died after getting the vaccination when uh, forced, you know, to, to be on teams or to play sports and all of this? Uh, who's responsible? Who compensates the family, you know, for this loss? And all of us seem to know someone who, oh yeah, my, you know, uncle or my friend's uncle got the vaccine within 24 hours. You know, we lost him. Um, these are stories that are real. And um, my friend uh, in Nova Scotia, actually, he set up that page that got taken down after 300,000 mm -hmm. Uh, members. Tiago. Yes, yeah. Tiago. And mm -hmm. this was died suddenly news. All, all it was, was people putting their stories down. I mean, you couldn't read that for five minutes without just going, this is horrible. All the stories, the real time stories never report reported in the news, but sadly never discussed or, or, um, debated or thought through by the medical people who were relying on. You know, and now that's yeah. so sad. Yeah. Oh, listen, I absolutely agree. Um, so the problem I said right away, I was still the head of Emerge when the vaccination program started. And one of the things I fished around about right off the hop was here we were basically starting a huge public trial on a new vaccine that was not tested. And so I tried to ask a few questions. What are the side effects we should be looking for? And how should we report them if they, we think we see one? And, and really didn't get any answers. So our... our our doctors really didn't get any um, any instruction in, okay, if you think this is a vaccine side effect, here's where you go to get a form, here's how you fill it out and whatnot. And then when, if you were energetic enough to dig that all up, it was a horribly long process that most doctors were not gonna bother to do unless they were very, very invested in it. Um, 
so right away I said, okay, the vaccine monitoring in Canada is nil. So we're not going to get information that way. So really the only way that we get data on this is by looking back at the, the, the overall disease and mortality data through the time that we were vaccinating people. So, um, for instance, you know, in 2021, it looks like there was an increase in certain cancers. It looks like there's an increase in heart disease. It looks like there's an increase in various things. Uh, All-cause mortality was clearly higher in certain places. Now, public health should be responsible to explain that. So there's only two explanations as I see it. Number one, it could be an outcome of lockdown and, and uh, medical system lockdown and the lack of care. So for instance, if you didn't go to your doctor and get a checkup in a year, your blood pressure was through the roof, you didn't know it, and then you have a stroke or a heart attack, that could be part of it. But it just seemed to coincide a little too well with the vaccination program. So we really need to look at that and have an honest and open discussion. The data needs to be put out there. Public health needs to be asked, hey, can you explain this? If there is another explanation, you you tell us it. We're all ears. But you can't just sort of gloss over it and sweep it under the rug. But um, again, because pol politicians and public health was all in on the vaccines and they said safe and effective a million times, it's really hard for them now to say, hey, it looks like there actually is a signal in this data. And we did have an increase in heart disease, strokes, blood clots, whatever, whatever it is that they see. It's going to be very hard for them to admit that. It's going to have to be forced out of them bit by bit by bit by people relentlessly staying after them. And another thing that we felt uh, has been difficult is just the amount of money that's been thrown everywhere. Um, not not even just what, you know, the health officials are, are paid, um, but also the money that seems to have gone into certain, you know, if somebody dies in the hospital or uh, with COVID or if certain uh, remedies are given or used, the doctor seems to have benefits. That was very, very pronounced in the United States of America. Um, mm -hmm. And then also um, the amount of COVID dollars that were given to churches if they would have a COVID mandate or a, uh, you know, um, a vaccine mandate, like if you'll promote this, if you'll have a vaccine clinic or whatever, all the money that we've now heard from pastors and those in authority that sometimes complied with it and some just said no way and sort of, you know, we're whistleblowers on this. All of that just gives us a bad feeling like the money became the driver, not the science and not the safety. Absolutely. I'll give you a little particular story. Here in Nova Scotia, the uh, our, our union, which we pay mandatory fees to, um, and they debatably represent us, but they cut a sweetheart deal behind the scenes with the government where doctors could get paid up to $45,000 per month to be off, per month. So if you were, uh, let's say, um, an optometrist and they, they were kind of at the top of our earning scale and they were making big, big money running a clinic, doing cataract operations and other things, um, and then suddenly you couldn't do them because cataracts were considered non-urgent, you can't do them during COVID, um, then and you're sitting home, well, you apply and you can get up to $45,000 a month. All you have to do is prove that you made that much last year and you'll get it. Now, you, you tell me, <clears throat> how does it affect somebody's um, motivation to get things opened up again as patiently as possible when they're getting paid $45,000 a month to be off? I think it's not exactly hush money. I don't think it was done that way. It was done to keep people happy and to keep doctors from 
you know, leaving the province or going to Florida or whatever. But in the end, what it did was it took away any motivation of Canadian doctors to actually fight back. Like we, in Emerge, for instance, we had extra funding in Emerge for extra staff and whatnot. And we were sitting there with 40% of our normal volume. Doctors were thumb wrestling over the next person to walk into the to the waiting room because they were bored. Nurses were dancing on TikTok videos and things like that. You know what I mean? Because we were the healthcare heroes, but in most provinces for most of the pandemic, we were sitting around empty wards, empty emergency rooms, and people were having their strokes and heart attacks at home and too afraid to come in. 100%. And that is the same um, testimony that we are hearing from people all the way over here in British Columbia. Um, a, a nurse, actually, he said, oh, I hear there's going to be a big surge of COVID people. So he goes to his hospital, you know, in the interior or whatever. And there's nobody there. Uh, and yet now we've had clinic after clinic and hospital after hospital shut down because there's not enough workers. And uh, so th that has, you know, severely um it's, it's hampering the care that we're receiving here in British Columbia. And I don't know if that's going across all of Canada, but this is leading to more stress and people are not getting the diagnosis perhaps for, you know, early intervention in cancer or whatever. And it's caused a great problem. Um, th this, this is one of the greatest alarms that and concerns that people are having now. Mm -hmm. It's re it's been really sad to see what's happened over the last couple of years with the disintegration of the healthcare system. Now that's that's a larger issue, and I'd say it's very similar to the erosion of free speech. You know, it was slowly and then all at once. The healthcare system has been eroding certainly since I started med school. It's just gotten worse and worse and worse every few years. I think every few years I think it can't get worse, and then every few years it's worse. Um, and COVID kind of um, accelerated that process. Uh, I, I won't go into all the gory details, but um, more or less, you know, we took out a certain percentage of healthcare workers. There's docs and nurses who either retired early got because they got fed up or they've curtailed their work because the work environment is miserable working in a mask and a shield, things like that. They're unvaccinated and they're not allowed to go to work, but uh, we, we cut out a certain percentage of the workforce and we created all this pent up need. You know, we had a whole bunch of patients who didn't get cancer screening, who didn't get their blood pressure checked, didn't get anything for for the better part of two years. And now they're all kind of pouring into clinics looking for care where we actually have reduced capacity. Um, hospitals are suffering. And the problem with an, a hyper-socialized system like Canada, like we have the most socialized system in the world besides Cuba and North Korea. We have great restrictions and there's, there's no way to be flexible. You know, doctors are locked into a certain payment model. Um, we're often uh, paid. We don't, if we make more money, it's just sort of clawed back by by Trudeau with some of the new rules. Some some doctors who are incorporated could be paying up to seventy percent of their their income back in taxes. So why why work harder? Why try to make more money? Why try to oh. see do we even in clinics if you're just going to get it all taken back? There's a lot of factors that don't allow us to uh, flex our system to get all these patients seen. And I've I could tell you story after story of patients who've suffered and and numerous who died because they didn't get care in a timely fashion 
Wouldn't be, wouldn't it be great, you know, if someone like Dr. Teresa Tam really did something to overhaul and actually make Canada better in this way? Like, wouldn't it be, it just, it's so logical, you know, wouldn't it be great? And one of the things that we're most concerned about is our children and the effect that everything's had on the kids, uh, you know, just all the way from the mandates, the, the lockdowns, the masks, uh, the, the, the trauma really that they've experienced. But there's this one doctor, Dr. Russell Blaylock. I wanted to play uh, a brief video uh, that he put out on the immune systems of children just to get uh, your comment if I could. Analyze what it demonstrated was that there was a remarkable difference between the health, the chronic health and the acute health of the vaccinated versus the unvaccinated. This is based on abnormalities induced by the vaccine into the uh, immune system. We had increased ear infections. You had increased asthma, increased pain. A, a number of these conditions just went down the list. Uh, eczema, gastrointestinal problems. And if you look at the graph, you see it's not a minor difference. It's a huge difference in the two groups. Vaccinated are having considerably more than the unvaccinated. The more vaccines that the child got, the higher the incidence of all of these disorders. If you overstimulate the immune system with these different powerful adjuvants, it can disrupt that developmental process. And so that would explain why we're seeing this list of uh, 15 to 20 uh, immune-related diseases uh, in the heavily vaccinated children. But with the vaccine, what you're doing is you're stimulating the immune system in a way that you never see with a natural infection. You're causing uh, the immune system be activated for years, even decades. The immune system is constantly being stimulated by the aluminum, the mercury, the other things that are in the vaccine and the adjuvants. This aluminum is not removed from the brain like some of these people said. It's stored in the brain, particularly the astrocyte and the microglia, producing constant immune activation that goes on for years and years, decades. You better look at what we're studying. You better look at what we're saying. Um, I was somebody that I did get my kids uh, all their vaccines. I'm not an anti-vaxxer. Uh, I just like good information. And when you show me graphs and when you show me data, then I begin questioning it. And I always hope that science and the, those that are at the top of the medical fields are also keeping on top of all that kind of stuff so that they are, they're making the best choices for our medical system for all of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, vaccines are so complex. Like, I I should tell you, where I started to go off the rails with vaccinate everybody for everything all the time was when the flu shots became kind of a common thing in uh, Canada in the sort of in the late 90s, early 2000s, just when I was coming into practice. And it's when the government kind of started to pay for them for everybody so that they were, you know, quote unquote free, which they never, they're not free. We pay for it through our taxes, but they seem free when you get them. But I, I started, at first it was like, this is going to be for the old folks who are unwell and maybe over 65 and have medical conditions. But then it was like, oh, we're going to do younger, healthier people. And then it was like, oh, you can vaccinate your kids for flu. And I'd see these parents dragging these healthy young kids in. And it was a horrible experience for the poor child to get another vaccine because they were probably already afraid from their last one. And there was a few times where, you know, the kid would be screaming and yelling, the parent would be trying to hold them down. I'd say, do you really want to do this? I don't know if it's worthwhile. And they would, then we, that would result in a conversation. And I have to talk about how, you know, flu really isn't a big risk for kids. Yes, they can get sick. Yes, they can even die. 
but you're more likely to die in a car accident on the way home from the clinic when you leave. So you got to put it all in perspective, right? And then we started to vaccinate for things like chickenpox universally and uh, kind of recommend it to everyone. And when you look at how many kids actually died or had serious complications from chickenpox in Canada in the run of a year prior to vaccinations, it just wasn't that many. So then I started to say, well, you know, vaccinations are great for diseases that are really dangerous and would be a big problem if we didn't vaccinate. But when we start to vaccinate for these things that are less and less dangerous, are we really doing any good? Because we know that there's a, a couple of things that happen. There have been several cases in the past, like um, I can't, I, I'll get it wrong if I name the vaccine, but there was a certain vaccine that was given out, uh, I believe it was for a gastrointestinal illness to a bunch of children in Africa. And what they found was they had less of that gastrointestinal illness, but more of other illnesses. And they were actually more likely to die during the study period. So the disease specific mortality and numbers look good. Oh yeah, we prevented whatever it was, rotavirus, let's say, or it wasn't rotavirus, but we prevented that one disease, but overall we didn't do any good. A COVID vaccination, especially for kids, is the same thing. For a healthy child, the odds of dying from COVID itself, like if you're not vaccinated, we're only, the worst case scenario is around two in a million, right? And you look at what else, what's more likely to kill you than two in a million? Kids are more likely to drown. They're more likely to die in a car accident. They're more likely to die of cancer. You know, it comes way down on the list of things to worry about. So then you say, well, how safe does a vaccine have to be before it's going to be um, less risky than two in a million for COVID. And the answer is really, 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 really safe, way safer than we know it is because we didn't have the data at that time to say it was that safe. And yet we pushed it on kids as if somehow if parents didn't get them vaccinated, they were going to put their kids at risk. And I saw a lot of parents who were terrified. They were terrified their kids were going to die COVID. And I talked to a lot of people off a ledge. I had to explain, no, 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 no. Your, your, odds, your odds of being struck by lightning walking out this door are more than your kid's odds of contracting and then dying of COVID, right? 100%. We just lost perspective. Yeah, we lost the balance. And, and thank you for, uh, you know, for being daring enough to speak the truth. Uh, we know the statistics on, on children and now it's all coming out. And the fear, the fear that has been placed on everybody uh, by all the way from, from the top, you know, medical authorities in our country in and all over the world it was just so much fear now uh you and your wife uh you write parodocs.substack.com and i want to encourage everybody to sign up to this substack um you do uh, you've done a series of uh articles on all kinds of things yeah we so my wife, um, Julie Kerwin, she's a, a psychiatrist and we met in med school, but Julie also has, a, she has a background in philosophy and political science. Uh, and I, I kind of, I have a background in, uh, physics. I have a master's in physics. So I'm, I'm kind of pretty good with numbers as of Julie, as is Julie, I shouldn't say she's any worse than me. She's a lot smarter than I am, but we, we read a lot on philosophy, political science, psychology, and we kind of apply our thinking on that to issues, largely COVID in the last couple of years, obviously, because it's the elephant in the room, but other other things as well. Um, so we've been writing and and I, I think people will enjoy our articles. We, we approach things with a sense of humor, we, but serious topics. So thing, things like, um, you know, forced vaccination, here's a here's an article on it, but but hopefully it'd be fun to read and informative. Um, we, we kind of, we started this and then we, we realized there's such 
a, a bad trend in Canada. There's this concept that many of your listeners will probably have heard of called the Overton window. The Overton window is the boundaries of acceptable political discussion. So for instance, a hundred years ago, if you had said, we're going to take a single mother who had a baby out of wedlock and give her a bunch of money to support her from the government and give her money, you would have got laughed out of the room. There's nobody, even on the left side of the political spectrum, would have thought that was okay. Now, if you went into a room with a bunch of people of different political stripes and you said, I think we should cut off payments to single mothers on welfare just because they have a, a kid. I don't think that's right. It encourages them to have children, blah, blah, blah. You would get tossed out of the room and probably sunk in the harbor with a you know a weight around your leg. So the the this Overton window, what's acceptable to say and think has shifted. And uh, we we have started free speech in medicine to kind of push back against that closing of the Overton window within medicine. We want to be able to discuss everything. If we can't discuss everything, it's not science. You know, science, science, you have to argue for it to be science. If it's not open discussion, that's not science, that's uh, an autocracy, that's a totalitarian state. So uh, the free speech and medicine movement that we've started is, is to push back against that and to talk about all the hot button topics. I, I think that's absolutely brilliant. And I hope that, that is a, that's a movement that is going to, you know, um, spread across the entire medical community so that we can restore trust at some point because it's not there. And uh, people like yourself and uh, your wife and, and this this great thing going on, you're, you're bringing together, I guess, a whole bunch of people who want to speak openly and honestly about the facts as we have faced them. Absolutely. So people will recognize some of these characters here, but like Dr. Jay Bhattacharya will be well known to you. I know you've interviewed him and I believe you've interviewed him. I think I recall that. Um, but Jay, you know, he's, he was one of the co-authors of the Great Barrington Declaration. We have Dr. Francis Christian, who's been a great voice here in Canada, speaking out for informed consent. Dr. Stanley Goldfarb is at university uh, or just, just retired from University of Pennsylvania, but he started Do No Harm Medicine in the US, which is basically pushing back against wokeism and sort of what some people call reverse discrimination in medicine. Um, and then we have Bruce Party, who's a very well-known uh, lawyer in Canada who's been a real real bright light in the freedom movement here and then some other great content experts as well as Trish Wood who Trish Wood podcast many people will know Trish Wood and probably listen to her she's interviewed all the big names and she's well well worth uh like checking out so we have all these people coming in person to speak at our conference and it's going to be a wonderful event where you get to shake hands ask questions in person and maybe even sit around in the evening and have a glass of wine with some of these amazing folks that is absolutely wonderful. And of course, you know, we're heading to Nova Scotia. So I do hope to uh, meet up with you at some point and have you come and speak at uh, one of our events. Uh, we're hoping to go to five, four or five great places across Nova Scotia. So that should be incredible. I'm interested in this also that you are going to be interviewed by the National Post with respect to euthanasia and the impact of that on uh basically people that struggle with mental illness. Uh, yeah, one of, one of the reporters from the National Post uh, already had a chat with us. I'm not sure, you know, a lot of these preliminary chats may not end up translating into articles, but uh, we people may know a little bit about this, but a few years ago, we okayed, um, and I like to say assisted suicide, euthanasia is fine. I hate this, we call it MAID medical yeah. assistance in dying. And it's one of these 
euphemisms, which is meant to water down the co concept. And I think we should just call it what it is so we can talk about it honestly. But I'll, I'll, I'll quickly tell you my story. When, when I first started practice and one of my first one of my first experiences was I, I, I was I helped attend a gentleman who was dying of a very, very painful cancer. And he was in his last couple of days and he was just in horrible pain. And uh, we ended up having to give him a little bit of morphine, a little bit more, and a little bit more. And he was still in pain. He's getting sleepier, but he's still in horrible pain. His wife looked at us and said, isn't there something you could do? And I said, well, we can give him more morphine, but I'm afraid he might stop breathing because of it. And she looked at me in the eye and she said, Chris, please give him more morphine. We, you know, we, our team, we made that decision and we gave him more morphine. And sure enough, a couple of hours later, he, he died. I, I don't know if I hastened his death or not, but I lived in fear for months and months that somebody would review that case and I would have a knock on the door and I'd be carted off to jail. Right. Um, and to me, you know, there are these end of life circumstances where we either let somebody suffer horribly or we use drugs that may hasten their death, but make them more comfortable. And there's a difficult balance there. And when we okayed medical assistance in dying, i.e. Uh, euthanasia, that is the kind of patient that I pictured it for. So I was actually on board to my shame. I thought, well, that's okay because it's only going to be used for these extreme cases, just so that we don't arrest doctors and put them in jail for trying to help. But very quickly, what I started to hear about within a year of it being okay, we were doing things like I, there's a, there's an article that, you know, I could give you the link if you want to post it with this, but it, there's a, an older couple who had dementia and some medical problems who decided that it was their time. So they had their whole family over for supper. They hugged their family goodbye and all that. They went and laid down on the bed and the doctor injected them both and killed them. Right. And to me, I, I when I read that as disturbed, I was like, that's not what anybody told me this is going to be for. So there was this immediate slippery slope slide into wait a minute, this isn't somebody right in their last few hours of life or maybe their last day of life. This is somebody who could probably have another dinner the next night, another dinner the next night and speak with their grandkids and maybe pass on wisdom before they go and maybe have some more joy and we're killing them. And now uh, it's gonna be extended in Canada even more into the realm of mental health. So you don't even have to have a, a, a physical condition that's gonna kill you in the next year, two years to, to qualify. You can just say, I'm so depressed, my life is not worth living, and you can qualify for assisted suicide. You could be potentially be 31 years old and completely physically healthy, which is really, really down the last couple of years. And, you know, my wife as a psychiatrist is just appalled by this because she said there's been so many of these people who she's seen who've come to her and said, my life isn't worth living, I want to kill myself, etc. And our job was always to help those people. And if one of those people went home and killed himself, we could be liable because we didn't help them. But now if that person comes and says, my life isn't worth living, I want you to help you to kill me. Well, we're going to be legislated to actually help them do that. So that's very confused to me. On the one hand, we could be going, you know, we could be uh, raked over the coals if they kill themselves. On the other hand, if we don't help them kill themselves, now the legislation is saying that we're not respecting patient rights. Which is it? Those, those are mutually exclusive and it's, it's incredibly disturbing because a lot of those patients get better. They have an epiphany, they meet somebody, they find God, something happens in their life and you see them two years later and they say, I'm so glad I didn't commit suicide. My life is great now. I just had my first child, whatever it is. Yeah. And they're over it. And if we kill them, that's it. They don't get that chance. 100%. Thank you for understanding that because it's my, um, uh, I think that I was reading that our euthanasia laws in Canada are some of the most liberal in the entire world. 
And it does appear that our, our government seems to endorse this kind of thing. I even heard that there's possibilities that even a young person could say want to end their lives. So I, I don't know what kind of doctor would actually help a young person, you know, but if you're heartbroken and you don't want to live anymore, um, you know, we're heading towards that place where just decisions can be made that you want to access this. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, I think it's, there's somewhat of the same idea or mindset. That same thing, like a 13 year old girl who's been online with a bunch of friends and decides she's a boy and wants to have surgery and hormones. Yeah. And we're now being trained in medical school, just say the patient is always right. Our job isn't to argue with them. It's to support them. But it's the same in, as I see it in, in uh, euthanasia, assisted suicide. It's the same thing we're taught to say, no, the patient has ultimate autonomy. We're never supposed to argue with them. We're never supposed to try to talk them out of their thoughts. We're, our job is to support whatever their decision is. Now, there's, I think what happened was the pendulum swung, swung too far, right? It used to be that medicine, if you go back 60 years, medicine was extremely paternal. We wouldn't really always listen to the patient. It's like, well, we know what's best for you. I don't really care what you want. I'll make the decision myself. That was wrong. Certainly, we need to include patients in decision-making. But on the other hand, we can't just say, the patient is always right because the patient is often not right. And especially one of the characteristics of being depressed or anxious or having mental health disorders is that you lose touch to some degree with reality. You're not thinking straight. And many people, once they come out of their funk, will actually say that. They'll say, oh my God, I can't believe I was thinking of killing myself. You know, it would have, it would have been so hard on my wife, my kids. I have, I have more life to live. I have Absolutely. more things to give to the world. And, and, and they don't see that at the time. So to just say, well, if this patient says they want to die, they must be right. There's something deeply, deeply disturbed about that. Right. And just to, to uh, tag onto your comment there about uh, the kids and the gender transitioning, I mean, doctors are awakening uh, to the fact like Tavistock was shut down and doctors had left there and had said the outcomes were not, um, were not good. And it had even forced them to leave Tavistock. And then you see online on YouTube, you can see all of the videos of people that are detransitioning. And of course, they don't get accepted back into their community because somehow they betrayed their community because they decided that transitioning was not actually the answer that they had hoped it was. And we have a whole world not asking questions, the medical field uh, having a politically correct way of dealing with it, being more politically motivated rather than caring for the individual patients and understanding something's really wrong, but maybe like mm -hmm. before we cut your breasts off or you know, do these operations and put you on all of these cross-sex hormones. Before we do that, maybe let's just see like what's going on. And now it's practically uh, against the law to have discussions and uh, therapy and counseling to help kids get through this. Yeah, it, well, yeah, I'll make a comment on that and then talk a little bit more about the philosophy. I always like to start off, I always think from the deep principles, but yeah, there actually is a law in Canada now. If I get a kid in who insists that she is a he and wants to transition. If I were to say, hey, you know, I think maybe you're wrong here. Let's talk about the other side of this and whatnot. I could be accused of not respecting the person's gender decision or whatever, however they wrote that into law, but I could be actually 
committing a, a, something that's against the law in Canada just by suggesting that maybe we should wait and maybe there's another side to this. Um, that's really disturbing. But to go back to a, a, just a basic principle, which really right from the start of this whole kind of explosion of trans ideology, it's really bizarre to me, you know, when I, I was born in 1969 and, you know, at, as I was growing up, that whole thing about boys wear blue, boys play sports, girls wear dresses, girls don't play sports, you know, all this stuff. It was kind of being tossed out. Girls were starting more and more into sports. They were starting more and more into medicine and science and all these things. And we were throwing away these stereotypes. We we're saying just because you're a girl, if you want to get really dirty and go and collect frogs like my wife did as a kid, that, you know, that's fine. Uh, just because you're a boy, if you want to go skip and double dutch with the girls, that's fine. Or you want to play with a doll, that's fine. It doesn't mean you're not a boy. It just means that's what you like to do. And you probably grow out of it after a while and do other things. And who knows what you like to do. But boys can do what they want. Girls can do what they want. That's fine. We were breaking stereotypes. When you look at the trans ideology, it's actually going right back to stereotypes. It's saying, hey, if you're a... Uh, uh, seven-year-old boy and you like to go and skip with the girls and you like to maybe play with the doll once in a while well that's a sign you're probably a girl and we should probably take you to the doctor and say oh i think he's trans and maybe you know as soon as possible start him on the the uh, you know the puberty blockers etc cetera, etc cetera. so it's this weird thing where we're flipping right back around we're coming full circle back to saying we need to be really stereotypical in how we treat people because if you behave this way you must be actually a girl trapped in a boy's body or vice versa so it's really disturbed to me the basic philosophy is just so 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 wrong wow that that is really an an irony that you're pointing out actually and uh just such a shame right here in british columbia a teacher um told that to a little girl who was playing with a truck. She really said to her, well, maybe you're a boy inside. I can't think of how, how, how ignorant you have to be to be saying things like this to little kids and messing with their heads and their identity and all of that. And one of the things I would ask my mom before she passed away, she was uh, almost 90, but she said, uh, I'd say, mom, how many trans people did you have in your class? And she didn't know what trans meant. So I, and she was struggling a little bit with her memory too, but I'd have to explain what a trans person was every time. And then she had no idea. She goes, no, we had no one like that, you know, and when I was growing up, we didn't have any kids in my class that, uh, you know, were struggling with that. And all of a sudden we've got two or three, you know, in every class and, and this is becoming just, you know, a, a phenomenon. And like, why is that? Well, they started telling little kids a few years ago in kindergarten that they can, you know, they can decide for themselves. And maybe that this is, you know, some sort of thing that you do mm -hmm. in your mind. Um, and, and it's yeah. just been very sad to me. And it, it really has been something that I've stood up for and, and spoken about because I had a national job, a national broadcast job on television. And um, basically, because I was, you know, being quite bold in my speech regarding this, I lost that job. And not because they mm -hmm. didn't agree with me. And here's the thing. It's people who totally agree with you. They just they just don't want the fight. And because we haven't wanted mm -hmm. the fight, and it goes back to Canadians being, you know, just so, um, so polite, not willing to stand. Mm -hmm. Now it's everywhere. And how mm -hmm. do we how do we put it all back in the bottle? You know? Yeah, it's so hard, isn't it? Uh, just two quick, two quick comments. Uh, what's really interesting before the explosion of trans It'll interest people that the number one country in the world for performing gender sex change operations was actually Iran 
for many years, which is interesting. But the reason for that was because it's not it was not acceptable to be gay in Iran. So you had to if you were a man who liked men, well, you'd better get your gender changed because you couldn't be a man who liked men right. and do very well. So okay. so Iran for many years was the number one uh, sex change uh, country in the world that. per capita. That then uh, the other thing um, that's kind of uh, yeah yeah. Sorry, I lost my you train lost of thought. There. <laughs> we talked about yeah, the I'll, other I'll, one so much. <laughs> it will come back. Yeah, absolutely um, fascinating. Um, and and now you can't put it back. You know what I mean? Like if once you've uh, sort of rearranged your bottom area, uh, very hard to get everything back to the way that it was. And now more and more seeing this detransitioning that's happening. And the medical field needs to be not governed by political correctness and this woke mentality. Um, it needs to be governed by science and outcomes and data. And we would all be happier if that was the case. But instead, uh, you know, you're not allowed to say this and that. We're making laws that govern our speech and our thinking and our, basically our conscience. And I think Canada's mm -hmm. gotten onto the wrong, wrong track. And we certainly saw that in COVID. Well, I'm just yeah. so uh, very, very pleased uh, that you've been here. I'll give you a final word on anything that we've said. Um, thank you for standing. I, I do pray that you are protected in your position and that you keep on doing because we really need you. We need the, the pushback and the stand for common sense because that feels to us, the normal people, like that's lost. Mm. Well, thank, thank you very much for having me. And what, maybe what I'll just finish with is by saying, you know, the last the last few years for me, because like I say, I ran into problems with free speech even before COVID. It was very it was very personally hard on me. And then during COVID, losing my losing my position and having you know numerous doctors I know look down on me and say things about me, both to me, but more often behind my back. It it really it was hurtful. But you know, I guess the thing that I'd say is I've in a way, I've become more. I've become very deeply disappointed in in humanity in ways, but maybe more realistic about it in ways. But on the plus side, it's made me really, really appreciate good, upstanding, moral people uh, so much more. Like I, I think I didn't I didn't appreciate people enough for their deep principles and I, I was more i used to you know i was very involved with running and cycling and swimming and i hung around with people because they did the same things as me but that was kind of superficial a lot of them are very good people and i'm still in touch with them but then there's some that i saw you know that used to be very good friends of mine in that realm and then they were the ones who were speaking out saying that unvaccinated people should basically they deserve to die or they don't deserve health care or whatever and now i look and i think wow you know i'm I'm sad that I ever thought they were a good person and I realize now what they are, but it's led me to this whole new group of friends. It's allowed me to meet people like you and in, in so many ways, it's brought my life to a much more positive place. So I think everything happens for a reason, you know, for some people, they believe it's fate, for other people, it's God, whatever it is that's led me here. I'm not, I'm not sad that it's all happened and, and life is pretty good and getting better. That is awesome. And we have all grown so much. You're so right. We found new communities. We found what really matters in life because uh, we, we've been tested to a very um, high level of people being intolerant and nasty. And we've had to decide and think through what's important um, in a way that we never 
We never saw it coming. We didn't see that this would bring us here. And then we as well get to celebrate people like yourself. So I thank you, Dr. Chris Milborn. I hope to see you in Nova Scotia. I uh, hope everybody checks out your Substack uh, with your wife. I think that that is a terrific name. Pairodocs.substack.com. Uh, P-A-I-R-O-D-O-C-S at uh, .substack.com. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Milburn. We sure do appreciate you. Well, listen, thanks again so much for having me on. It was great to chat with you and hear your thoughts. And Thank you. Yeah, we'll Thank do it you. again sometime. We will, Bye. for sure. Thank Bye. you. Bye-bye. Very nice. Wow. One of the greatest things about life is who you get to do life with. And I've met so many incredible doctors, lawyers, uh, the the good folk of Canada standing up, uh, some of the nurses that have lost their position um, who refused to bow, who refused to bow to the insanity of being forced. My body, my choice, right? Isn't it? Isn't that what they tell us? I think it is. Um, I think that we should get to decide <laughs> what goes into our body. So I do have that great book, uh, The Real Anthony Fauci. I do uh, t say to everybody, please try to read this. I got this from my wonderful uh, producer, uh, Gary. Gary gives me the best ideas every day on what to put on the show, and uh, he's very cool. And thank you to Toby Carson for always booking the great guests that we have. Uh, my uh, website is... Uh, lauralyn.tv. Thank you very much for your support. If you're able to help us to do what we do, um, it means more than you know. And so I thank you very much if you're able to go there and make a donation uh, of any amount, um, high or low. Uh, we just appreciate it so much. Many of you are becoming monthly partners and that means a lot. Uh, you can make a one-time gift. You can also just email uh, live at protonmail.com to help us do what we do because apparently the government does not um, endorse uh, or help us <laughs> the way that they help the CBC, CTV, and Global. And you will not see anything that you saw here today. It will not be replicated on your nightly news because they won't talk about it. And we feel it's important to talk about it. So thank you. I wanted to, uh, I mentioned early on in the show, uh, that story of, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and it's found in Daniel 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits, uh, 60 cubits high, that's a mouthful, 60 cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Jira in the province of Babylon. And he then summoned the satraps, prefects, and governors, and he got them all to come and the herald loudly proclaimed nations and peoples of every language this is what you are commanded to do as soon as you hear the sound of the horn flute zither lyre harp pipe and all kinds of music you must fall down and worship the image of gold that king nebuchadnezzar had set up whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into the blazing furnace you know when i think about today um like it it has so many parallels. Like there was an idol set up. Call it what you want, but this whole COVID thing, I mean, COVID this, COVID that, COVID was the boss. Uh, COVID's going to kill us. The fear mongering, you know, that was over all of it. And then to find out that the median death rate in, you know, in Canada is basically 82 or 84 years of age. And that um, I hear Bill Gates now making statements. Well, we just didn't know it wasn't going to actually be as bad as we thought. It would be more had amount to um, the flu 
And uh, so basically that's the end results of it. Uh, you don't see pandemic numbers of deaths. What you're seeing is a rise in deaths now, post-pandemic, not from COVID. And so this idol was set up. You have to bow to it. You have to, you know, do whatever uh, we tell you to do and get that shot. You have to bow. Well, <clears throat> very, very, very close similarities can be drawn because there was these three guys and I take my strength from them. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and their God was the one true God, the God of Israel, and they refused to bow, and they said, we're not going to do it, and so they were called in before Nebuchadnezzar, and uh, they were told uh, that, you know, I'm, he said, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to throw you into the furnace if you do this, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it says in verse 16 of Daniel 3, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. They're basically saying, listen, we don't have to defend ourselves. We, we have bodily autonomy and we choose not to bow. And uh, then they said, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. Hey, if you're going to try to kill us, well, you know, we accept that you're going to try to do that. But we actually believe that our God can deliver you, can, can deliver us from your majesty's hand. And there, there was that kindness that uh, they all showed to the, the murderer, Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> but even if he does not, <clears throat> even if God does not rescue us, we want you to know your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. We're not going to do it. Nebuchadnezzar was furious and he gathered the, the bad dudes and he said, pick them up, throw them in the fire. And you know what happened next. They were thrown into that fire. They hoped God would rescue them before the fire. But God chose to do something really amazing. He chose to allow them to be in the fire. And then God chose to dance with them in the fire. And then he rescued them. I've loved being here with you. Thank you for being here with me. We'll see you tomorrow. God bless. You know, it's not easy to deliver the truth of what our sick world is doing, but for some of us, we feel that we have no choice. Because if we are silent about these abominable things, then we are letting evil go unchecked, and we cannot do that. For those of you wonderful people who are writing me and are sharing your encouragement, I am deeply grateful. Thank you for all the letters that you've been sending. Thank you for the donations and the support. I found out that in order to speak the truth, you have to become very, very strong. If you would go to my website at www.lauralyn.tv, you'll find all of the ways that you can contact me. Remember, my friends, all is well. All is well. Thanks for joining me.